It's really the community who knows both the challenges and the solutions better than anybody else. What is happening here? Where is that disconnect? The brain is malleable and new experiences create new neural wiring. We are all wired for connection. We need each other to survive. Welcome to Remembering Resilience, a podcast on Native American resilience through and beyond trauma. I'm Deanna Drift, a member of the Boy Sport Band of Chippewa in Northern Minnesota. I'm the Director of Tribal Projects for Family Wise Services. And my name is Mickey Foley. I'm the Communications and Development Vista for Family Wise. Deanna asked me to co-host this episode and I am honored to be here. This podcast series is a collection of stories intended to help Natives reflect on our own experiences. One that we'll share with you today is the story of how Natives are reconnecting to our own healthy and culturally appropriate foods in our tribal communities. This is often called the Food Sovereignty Initiative. According to the Indigenous Foundation, food sovereignty is a movement and a policy approach that aims to restore and protect the rights and practices of Indigenous peoples to produce, access, and consume their own traditional foods based on their culture and ways of life. It involves decolonizing the food system and nurturing relationships with the land, plants, and animals that provide food. It also addresses the underlying issues that impact Indigenous peoples' food security and health. Didi, I was wondering, what kinds of food do you consider to be traditional in your culture? I'd say it depends on what region or geographical area the tribe is located. Um, for mine, uh, Boys Fort, it would be manomen, which is wild rice, um, deer meat, moose meat, duck, walleye, and different types of berries. As a youth, I learned how to navigate a canoe through school and culture classes. As a teenager, my mom brought me out on the lake and taught me how to rice. At that time, I knew I wasn't good at knocking the rice into the canoe, so my preference has always been pulling. Um, You stand up in the canoe in the back, the rear of it, and we go through all the rice as she's knocking it into the boat. My dad was also a hunter and a trapper. So I learned about gun safety, how to shoot, carry a rifle around at age seven. So growing up, we would go and check his traps and he would often sell the hide to um, buyers up around Little Fork in International Falls. And he did that for cash to put food on the table for us. Food sovereignty has always been a part of tribal self-reliance. It's great to see our people still accessing traditional foods 
And this is one of the reasons why I invited Danny Paratos to the table to talk about the great things happening at Boysport surrounding food sovereignty. Danny, welcome and please tell us a bit about yourself and how you got connected to growing food and starting your business. Hey, yes, miigwech for inviting me in. So I'm Danny Paratus. I'm from the Lake Vermilion Reservation, District 2 of Boys Fort, Band of Chippewa. And I am so grateful for my mother, Denise Paratus, who had a vision for an indoor aeroponic community-supported agriculture CSA farm. Um, I had really no awareness um, when it came to food and food sovereignty. Um, I, I always say I grew up in the food system, um, taking things at face value. I didn't really have a connection with food in the way that I do now. Um, and because of that, um, I kind of abused food, we'll say. I had poor eating habits and I suffered from um, some health issues from the, the foods I was eating. Um, and, you know, being from a tribal community, I heard of tribal sovereignty. Um, so in looking at food and um, our kind of place within the context of, of food culture as Native people, I came upon food sovereignty as a movement. And when I did more research into it, I was finding more and more all around the world how food has been used as a colonial tool of oppression of lots and lots of people. Um, and I got really mad. I got angry. And then learning more about, you know, farming practices, um, they call it monocropping, where they're just producing quote unquote cash crops, you know, just for profit. Farmers are getting paid crap. Um, and then the foods that come out, you know, they're not made with love as much because they're just kind of looking at the money side of things and not caring about people's health. One conversation I had with um, an organization that's out there to help uh, farmers build profit, I asked them, you know, where in your decision making, because they had mentioned they help with value added processing of corn for corn sugar. And I said, where, you know, where are you asking about the public health impact of what you're doing? And they were very honest, which I appreciated. They said, you know, we don't really think about it or talk about it. And it's like, oh, come on, man, like your foods are going into people's bodies. Um, so it's, yeah, it's uh, a turning point now um, as we're regaining our health, but we know we can advocate for ourselves and for good farming practices um, and producing good food that means, you know, so much for our, our wellness. They say now the real wealth in the world is health um, and well-being. And so it's really sweet to be able to be a part of this um, kind of transitional phase as we regain our connection with food. Yeah, absolutely. When we asked you about coming on the show, uh, you talked about how changing our relationship to food is a spiritual practice, and that plays a role in liberation. Can you tell us more about that? Definitely. It sounds hippy-dippy, but for me, and I think for all humans all over the world, if we just think of the magic of life on this planet, it is sustained by energy, 
And a lot of that energy comes from the sun and the cosmos. So we're intimately connected to the cosmos, the universe, through the sun's energy, which shoots down to earth. And our plant relatives gather that energy for our bodies. So for me, I can't seem to fully appreciate my food without thinking on this kind of cosmic spiritual level. But it's so real because even our bodies, right, are made up of elements that were created by star explosions in the universe. And just having moments of like prayer with food to reflect on how incredible and amazing um, life is, human life, um, that we're here talking together on this. Um, there's just so much that comes with uh, bringing, I guess, that prayer and spiritual awareness or higher consciousness awareness with, with food because it's something we can so easily take for granted. But when we remember where food comes from, um, it's just that much more fulfilling. So food is energy. It's powerful. It's medicine. And it has an effect on our mood. Um, and our health. So uh, appreciating our food through, you know, prayer or even just, you know, a little meditation. I think it's kind of uh, spirit uh, work and reconnecting us to the natural world, which we so need more of. So, yeah, that's my take on this cosmic life around food. Wow, that's amazing insight. And I would say aeroponics is truly revolutionary. Um, so if anyone is interested in food sovereignty, what resources would you recommend? Um, yeah, there are plenty. It's a, it's a great time. Um, so aeroponics is, you know, growing food um, in kind of a controlled environment. Um, and it's just kind of one solution to have local local food security. We need so many different forms of food production, and it's really going to look different for, you know, where you're living, what your food needs are, how you want to grow it. But I highly recommend for our region, Northeastern Minnesota, on Facebook, there's a page called the Northland Food Network. It's made up of local grassroots and public health coordinators, farmers. Um, they post uh, opportunities of like learning webinars that are posted through the U of M Extension Program. Really, if you just want to get started growing, you can watch YouTube videos on different kinds of growing methods and what works best for the kind of food you want to grow. There's more grant opportunities opening up for new or emerging farmers, especially women and Black and Indigenous people of color. The more we can grow our own food, the more influence we'll have on it to make sure it's meeting our whole needs, our spirit needs, our human connection needs between each other, the sharing of food, and overall just, you know, even the finances, even just keeping money in our, our local economies. It's, it's a great time to get started in food sovereignty. Miigwech, Danny, for leading us on this path to healing by reclaiming our cultural ways, and empowering tribal communities to grow their own foods. Thank you again for being with us today. Miigwech. Thanks for having me. Our second guest works with many tribal nations who are driving food sovereignty projects throughout the state. Sasha Houston-Brown is the Senior Communications and Advocacy Consultant 
at the Center for Prevention with Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Thank you for joining us, Sasha. You've worked with a lot of tribal nations. How has that uh, consulting impacted how you show up in this world? And uh, what does that mean to you? Yeah, you know, really thinking about food sovereignty, something that's really been impactful for me is really, you know, how do we as funders and folks working in the healthcare space as well, really start to you know, uplift Native-led solutions and maybe move away from terminology or quote-unquote solutions that might not fit for for tribes or even urban Indian organizations um, and really start to embrace what is working. So something we've done, I know, you know, with Blue Cross, Blue Shield Center for Prevention is really explicitly name food sovereignty, right? We're not talking about just food security. We're not just talking about food access. We're really talking fundamentally about, you know, food sovereignty for tribal nations and also how do we support that for for our urban community members as well. And so I think really just showing up, um, listening and, and really ensuring that when we do enter spaces that we don't come in thinking that we're the experts or we know the answers that it's really the community who, who knows both the challenges and the solutions better than anybody else. And it's our job to really listen and be humble and, and really, you know, support those solutions, invest in them and find other ways and avenues that we can really be an ally in the space. Along those lines, is there a specific scenario where you have seen the positive impact it has had on tribal communities? Absolutely. I can give, you know, an example of, you know, some funding that we did. And this was actually in 2020. So, um, you know, it, it was really going on to kind of at the start of the pandemic. With our Catalyst funding initiative, we supported uh, White Earth Nation with their food sovereignty effort. They had acquired a food truck. A gentleman named Zachary Page, who coordinates all of their food sovereignty efforts, had mapped, you know, what are the greatest barriers for, for, for tribal members in accessing, you know, healthy, fresh, or traditional foods. And one of the biggest was transportation. Like in some instances, it was 60 miles to the nearest grocery store where there was, you know, healthy, fresh foods. And then there was a huge barrier around price. And so what they did with their food truck is really bring food to the people. Uh, and really utilized an intergenerational approach where, you know, youth were actually uh, helping them with preparing these meal kits. Uh, and it was all based on traditional recipes. So I think a lot of times we might see efforts fail because it just it's not resonating with community when we think about w- what is healthy, right? Um, and here, healthy was really what is from the community, what's traditional, what is, you know, culturally what we've been eating for, you know, millennia. And, um, you know, it was really cool to see both young people and elders getting excited about these healthy recipes. And then the meal truck or food truck would help to deliver the meal kits, particularly to elders, you know, in just remote parts of the community. And it was free of cost for them. And it had such a huge impact on getting people excited about preparing foods.
I think one barrier we also realized too was a lot of times we talk about, you know, cultural foods or traditional foods. And because of colonization, you know, not realizing a lot of our community members might not know how to prepare them. And there could be shame around that or I don't really want to try because I don't know. And so by having it in a form where you had a recipe, you got all your ingredients brought to you, um, we're just eliminating all of the barriers, making it as accessible as possible. Um, and the community, there was an overwhelming positive response. And I think that's so cool. Anytime we can see, you know, elders, youth, parents, you know, families getting really excited about healthy eating and having it being rooted in culture. Um, that's something we always want to support. I said no more, please. I got sick on Kamachi's. So since many of our people are restoring and returning to our old ways of growing foods, what type of foods do you see being grown at higher rates than others? Um, yeah, we've been seeing a really diverse array of everything from, you know, returning maybe heirloom and indigenous seeds to really just doing also what might be easiest to start with, too. I've seen a lot with Three Sisters Gardening, right? So the corn, beans, and squash grow really well together and have been something communities have been planting together for, you know, hundreds of years. Obviously, you know, for our, our Anishinaabe nations, big emphasis on ricing and sugar bush as part of food sovereignty. And we've also been seeing a lot more tribes um, work to restore bison. So I know Red Lake, um, we're not involved in that, but Red Lake has been working to really restore their bison herd. And one of the big barriers there is just land access, right? Because you really have to make sure that the tribe has full kind of ownership of a very large land base for those animals. But yeah, I would say really diverse, but definitely see some, some similarities in terms of the Three Sisters Gardens, a lot of those heirloom corn varieties, Timsila, the kind of traditional Dakota turnips. And um, yeah, it's really exciting to see uh, that present and showing up and, you know, young people and elders getting excited. One of the cool things is I think Dream of Wild Health really has been leading the way, I would say, in Minnesota in terms of seed keeping and restoring a lot of those kind of old varieties of corn, um, timsala, all different types of, you know, our traditional vegetables. And they've also been kind of helping some of the other tribes access those, which is really huge. And the Indigenous Food Network, which is kind of overseen by Dream of Wild Health, is an effort that brings together a ton of different Native-led groups in the Twin Cities to really kind of create access for urban American Indian community members around healthy and traditional foods. The Four Sisters Farmers Market, which is in the Twin Cities, you know, Dream of Wild Health is there with a lot of their fresh produce that they're growing, a ton of other native vendors with different food ranging from things like, you know, canned and preserved food to fresh foods, baked foods. Um, and that happens in the Twin Cities right outside of NACTI um, and Powwow Grounds coffee shops during the summer. So if you go to NACTI's website, you can learn more about the Four Sisters Farmers Market and some of the really great efforts that they are leading to, to increase food sovereignty for the urban community. Absolutely. And if an Indigenous person listening to this podcast is interested in learning more about the funding opportunities or how to gain access to food sovereignty, 
whom would you suggest they contact or what resources would you recommend? Yeah, actually, we as the Center for Prevention have an opening right now, um, a funding opportunity. It's called the Food Justice Funding Initiative. And, you know, the goal with that initiative is really increasing access to, uh, you know, culturally relevant, affordable, fresh, healthy foods, and really supporting those community-led efforts, right? So recognizing that communities hold the solution to the challenges they face when it comes to, you know, food access or food sovereignty. And you can find that initiative on our website, which is just centerforpreventionmn.com under available funding, really a big emphasis on supporting, you know, Black, Indigenous, and communities of color in this effort. So I think there could be a a great opportunity for a lot of our urban communities as well as tribes. And I think there's a lot more funders really moving into the space of food sovereignty, recognizing that it's so much more than just food. It's really about community and cultural and spiritual health and those deep connections between, you know, culture and, and overall community well-being. So, I, you know, there's some really excellent funders out there as well. We've had a number of folks mention that they're probably going to apply for Indian Collective's Community Self-Determination Grant. And those are $100,000 per year and really focused on uh, overall efforts around community self-determination, including, you know, many things, but they do mention, you know, food sovereignty and some of our reclaiming of traditional health and well-being. And that's on uh, Indian Collective's website, which is ndncollective.org under their funding opportunities. Another opportunity too is just through, um, you know, the Minnesota Department of Health. You know, I know right now that they have been really putting efforts specific to the 11 tribal nations in Minnesota, but they also sometimes list other funding opportunities related to health and food. Me, Gwetch, Sasha, for your advocacy and commitment to tribal self-sufficiency and your work that continues to strengthen our tribal communities. And thank you for sharing all that information with us today. Thanks so much, Deanna. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sasha. This has been Season 3, Episode 3 of Remembering Resilience, a podcast on Native resilience through and beyond trauma. Hosted by me, Deanna Drift, and my colleague, Mickey Foley, with special guests, Danny Piratos and Sasha Houston-Brown. Dear my future son, always follow your heart. I'ma raise you to be book and street smart. I said, dear my future son, always follow your dreams. Just the fact that you believe can't help you achieve. Your existence is a resistance to genocide. Just remember the revolution ain't televised. Drama's in your DNA, but so is strength. If you ever need my help, I'll come from any length. Pursue your passion, never give up. Because when life knocks you down, you just gotta get up. It's called Dear My Future Son, but it's also for my daughter. I wrote this in advance, cause I ain't even a father. But I gotta change the world before I bring you in it. I will never rest until my work is finished. Love your world and all of the people in it. Cause the sky might be the view, but I promise it ain't the limit. Season 3 of Remembering Resilience was created and led by Susan Bolio, Deanna Drift, Brianna Matrius, and Lindsay McMurrin. You can find the full Remembering Resilience podcast series at rememberingresilience.home.blog. You can also listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, and elsewhere. 
Sound design for season three was done by Kaylin Keir. Sadie Lutmer contributed additional producing. This podcast is developed through a health power project at Family Wise Services with support from both the Center for Prevention at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Minnesota and the University of Minnesota. A big thank you to all of the artists who have contributed music to Remembering Resilience. This episode featured tracks by Wade Fernandez, Ruben Kiddo Stately, and additional compositions by Kaylin Keir. Season 3's intro theme features The Calling by Corey Medina. We'd like to extend a special thank you to the family of Calvin Ottertail.